Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Richard Gazarek, author of Prohibition Pittsburgh. Richard Gazarek, author of Prohibition Pittsburgh. If you were in Pittsburgh during Prohibition and walking down the street and you wanted to get a drink, how would you do it? No, you didn't have to go far. You could go just about anywhere to get it. There were saloons. There were blind pigs, blind tigers. There were people doing it in their own home. There were stores masquerading. Well, there were masquer- stills that masqueraded as stores. You could go in and buy one. There were fake doctor's offices, fake pharmacies where you could go get a prescription filled. Uh, so you didn't have to go far to get booze. I mean, it was this place was, as one historian wrote, was wet enough for rubber boots. That's how the great wet way they called downtown Pittsburgh. What's a blind pig? Blind pig is just a speakeasy, like a one-man operation. A lot of these people, you know, to make extra money, particularly during the early years of the Depression, uh, had they made booze and tried to make an extra buck. So if you didn't know the place, and uh, how would you recognize that a place was a speakeasy? Ask a cop. Because <laughs> the cops, <laughs> Pittsburgh cops, were uh, on the take. They were very corrupt at the time. And uh, often they were in cahoots with a lot of the bootleggers. They um, protected speakeasies. They protected saloons. They uh, ran sh- road shotgun on liquor trucks at night. Uh, so, and, you know, they make extra money because it, they didn't get paid very much. And Pittsburgh was um, incredibly corrupt. Matter of fact, there was a journalist by the name of Walter Liggett from Minneapolis, and he traveled around the nation writing magazine articles about the impact that Prohibition had. He came to Pittsburgh, and he wrote a piece called the Metropolis, Pittsburgh, the Metropolis of Corruption. And he talked about how all prohibition did was bring us cr- organized crime, and it corrupted the police and it corrupted elected officials because they all were involved in the protection racket. Well, if the policeman told you where the speakeasy was, was it like you see in the movies where a flap would open up and they'd ask? Yeah, a there were places like that. Uh, there was a place in Oakland, section of Pittsburgh, right across from the police station, called the Manaka Club. And you had to go through three sets of steel doors, and there was a little latch where the guy, you know, looked in, saw who you were, and there were lights above it. If the two lights were on, that mean it was uh, not safe to come. There's a raid in the offing. If one light was on, you can enter. So they, they had their... And it was very seldom did the Pittsburgh police make raids. It was always the federal agents, the state police, or the county detectives that were doing this. Pittsburgh police said, let the federal men raid. We're, we're not getting involved in this. So you give the password, and they open the door, and you go inside, and what would, would it look like? Well, some of them, the Manaka Club was very elegant. It was, um, had a lot of gambling. It had a still. It had an elegant bar. Uh, that was one of the exceptions, though, most of the places were, were dives, were boozy dives that weren't particularly nice. And people didn't go there for the atmosphere. They wanted to go get a drink. Where would they get the booze? Well, there were several ways. A lot of it was smuggled in from Canada, down via Lake Erie into Pittsburgh. A lot of it came on trains. But one of the uh, techniques that they used was before Prohibition went into effect, they gave saloon owners and bar owners six months to turn in their stocks and they put this liquor in bonded warehouses now there were a number of warehouses in Fayette County below uh, where we're at now in Pittsburgh and these bonded warehouses were protected so the the bootleggers figured out a way that they would forge government documents that allowed them to take a minimum amount out and that minimum amount allowed them to get it without anybody asking any questions. So they would get it there. 
Well, after a while, as the demand grew, they, they did away with that. They just haul a big truck up to the back door, hook a chain to the door, rip the doors off, run in, and steal as many cases of bonded liquor as they could and take off. So that was one way it came from. And then there was also tons of steels in this area that uh, provided liquor. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. Some of the breweries that went out of business because of prohibition but were allowed to stay in to make cereal-type products, they were doing it illegally on the side. Uh, you said that your grandfather was a moonshiner? Well, a little sort of like a moonshiner. He was a big drinker and a coal miner. Both of my grandfathers were. And I happened to be reading a newspaper one day, uh, what, this is many years ago, and I saw the paper had one of these columns where they talked about days of yore, and, and there was an article about Andrew Gazerik's front of his house blew off because his furnace exploded. Well, I, I found that. I took, went over to my father, and I said, Hey, Dad, did you see this about Grandpa? And he goes, <laughs> you start laughing. He goes, Hell, he says. He was making moonshine in the basement and didn't vent the still properly, and it damn near blew the house up. And a lot of that happened. Uh, there are pictures that I've seen where if you didn't vent the still properly, it got to a certain pressure, and it would just level the house. It could, that explosive. Uh, you describe Pittsburgh as a hard-drinking town. Oh, it's always been a hard-drinking time ever since the days of the colonial times of the Whiskey Rebellion. I mean, uh, this is a town that was m made on coal and iron and steel, and men worked hard, and the immigrants that came from southern, Italy, southern Europe and eastern Europe, they drank in their home countries, and this was the f one of the few ways that they could relax after a hard week's work was, having, was drinking. And they did it at celebrations, at weddings, and baptisms, and christenings, and uh, social events like that. And they would go on for days boozing. And so uh, I like to joke that, um, you know, we, we're sitting right across the river from the stadiums where there's a lot of tailgating during sports seasons. I like to joke saying that, you know, we invented tailgating because when the farmers were helping other farmers build a barn, they would put a keg of liquor of booze on the back of the wagon and tap it and drink while they were working. You describe Pittsburgh as the birthplace of American whiskey, and you also say that there was a thing called Mon Rye, Monongahela Rye, was held in such high regard that Herman Melville mentioned the drink in Moby Dick. He did. Tis July's immortal fourth, all fountains must run red today. Would now it revealed New Orleans whiskey or unspeakable old Monongahela? Yeah. Monongahela Rye was, was a quality crop. And it made, it was a little bit sweet, it made a very good whiskey, rye whiskey. And it was very much in demand. And uh, it was perfect for that area, the southern, southeast, southwestern part of Pennsylvania, all those counties grew it. So you had a great, great crop. And, uh, but, but the problem was the farmers, they couldn't sell their product, their whiskey, south because New Orleans in that area was controlled by the French at the time, so we had a trade embargo there. They couldn't sell it. So the only way they could sell it was if they shipped their grains and rye to the Philadelphia area. But they found out they could make more money if they took the rye, sent it to a distiller, and shipped it in kegs rather than shipped it, in, shipped it whole. So they would make maybe 60 cents a bushel. Uh, if they just sent the grain, they could make over a dollar a gallon. With, if they distilled it and sent it that way by mule over the mountains to eastern Pennsylvania. Was that mostly individual entrepreneurs with a still at the time? Uh, yes, yeah, some of them, although after that, there were in the southern part uh, of this county and in Washington, Fayette, and Greene counties, there were a lot of uh, real big distillers that uh, eventually got into the distilling business. And uh, now we have a in, in Pittsburgh area, we have a lot of uh, distilleries that have now started up. Uh, if, I, if I give you an example, uh, Weigel Whiskey in Lawrenceville makes whiskey the way it was made in colonial times. And it was named after Philip Weigel or Philip Wiggle, who was one of the instigators of the Whiskey Rebellion and was sentenced to hang by George Washington until he escaped. And jo Thomas Jefferson became president and pardoned him. So yeah, it's, it's got a history here, and it's always been that way. When did it become a commercial product that you could hold a bottle of with a label on it? Well, it actually became a commercial product during colonial times. I mean, there wasn't any currency. There was very few coins, hardly any paper money. So people used it as currency, and they would have their own brands.
They would bottle it and uh, pay their ministers and pay their workers in it. And uh, so in a sense, that's when it started to be a commercial product. When prohibition started to be a movement, how did that go down in Pittsburgh? Oh, <laughs> it didn't go down well at all. I mean, that's, that was the problem. It corrupted everybody, from the cop on the beat to the police superintendent to city council to the mayor. Uh, one of the worst mayors probably, I, and I can say this probably unequivocally, was Charles Klein. Charles Klein and his police superintendent, Peter Walsh, were perhaps the most corrupt men ever to govern the city. Charles Klein was a judge. He resigned his judgeship to run for mayor and won. But he had set up a business plan that, was, that, that allowed the city to be divided into zones. Each zone had a manager who told the bootleggers what they could charge, who they could buy their product from, um, how much they were going to pay, who'd have to pay off. And he limited police officials. Now, I'm talking about ranking police officials. They weren't allowed to more than earn more than 30000 a year in graft. Now, $30,000 a year in the late 20s and early 30s was a lot of money because when you're figuring these guys are only making two or 3000 a year as policemen. Well, you write in here that uh, in talking about the corruption uh, that Pittsburgh police rode shotgun on beer trucks that rumbled through the city at night making deliveries. Pittsburgh cops peppered federal agents with buckshot after raids, and a cop once assaulted a federal agent with a nightstick. So yeah. the federal police and the city police didn't get along very no, well. No, not at all. Oh, no. God, no. The uh, federal agents, the incident you're referring to, they got a tip, and they raided the still, and they found all these uniformed police Pittsburgh cops that were shotguns, and they had a small shootout at the time. They said, well, we were just guarding it. We didn't know who you were, but they were working for a bootlegger. There was one bootlegger, Philip Fazio, who said, who told the Pittsburgh papers that he had paid $350,000 in bribes and graft to public officials. And then he quickly, he signed a story, wrote the story for the Pittsburgh press and then quickly retracted it. But everybody knew where the money was. The uh, Ray Spriegel, one of the crusading journalists at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, had been writing for decades about that now the police had been corrupt. I mean, he even went to the point where his paper published a story with photographs of all the speakeasies and had little arrows listing who owned them, who the police inspector was that protected them, and the politician that oversaw all that. And that didn't shame anybody because it didn't have any effect whatsoever. It just kept, continued to go on. Well, when prohibition was proposed and there was a movement for it, who was for it and who was against it? Well. No, at first, nobody was for it. When World War I started, they enacted the Lever Food Control Act, and it controlled the uh, sale of grains, corn, rice, wheat, uh, rye, barley, because to support American troops, for, you know, provide food for American troops who were fighting in Europe. When the war ended, everybody thought, oh boy, we're gonna go back to boozing because during the war, beer was reduced to 2.75% alcohol, and then later, 0.5%. So it didn't have much of a kick. So when the war ended, everybody thought, oh, God, we're going to repeal the act. The bill's out there to, for President Wilson to sign. But he says, no, this, isn't a, this is a congressional requirement action, not, not the presidential. He refused to sign it. But by that time, the Dries, led by the Anti-Saloon League, had taken control of both houses of Congress and enacted the 18th Amendment. Who was the Anti-Saloon League? Uh, the Anti-Saloon League was led by Wayne Wheeler, who was an attorney who was really opposed to alcohol. And he was supported by the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And they were so powerful that they almost became a quasi-police agency. They hired private detectives to gather evidence and file charges against speakeasies and bootleggers. And uh, they, they, the, it's funny, the, the state couldn't afford its own revenue agents, so they had the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League pay their salaries. Because Pennsylvania, during the, those years, was simply broke. They didn't have any cash. Um, you write about Carrie Nation, the hatchet-swinging grandmother who was the scourge of saloon owners in the early 20th century. She arrived in Pittsburgh in 1904, declaring to the Pittsburgh Post that the city was the worst place I'd ever seen and the saloons are in terrible shape. All the young men in this city are going to hell. 
there any stories about Carrie Nation? Well, she never up? got very far chopping. She got arrested at, after she got off the train. They they put her right back on the train and got her out of there. But and her reference to the saloons, I mean, they were filthy places. They were tuberculosis breeding grounds. Uh, men would uh, throw up after getting drunk. There were, as a Difficult to explain, but the bars had urinals in them so men could stand there and drink and, and urinate at the same time so they wouldn't have to leave the bar. That's how filthy these places were. And, um, you know, she, and that's what she was referring to. I mean, this was, was terrible. I'm sure it was as bad in other towns, but you have to remember that Pittsburgh was an old city. Even in those days, it was run down. And um, these weren't exactly nightclubs they were going to. Were, were there speakeasies before Prohibition? Yeah, there was. Um, they had always been uh, popular even after Prohibition. Before Prohibition, you know, it was, it was cheaper to make your own booze because you could sell it cheaper and you didn't have to pay a state tax. And even after, in 33, when Prohibition was abolished and it was legal to drink again, there were still, even to this day, there are uh, speakeasies because people don't want to pay the tax on liquor. It's too high. So, yeah, you can, as a matter of fact, I could take you to a place in Somerset County right now and get you some off-the-shelf stuff if you want. <laughs> Not very good, but you, I could get you some. Well, and how did the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League manage to persuade a nation to pass a constitutional amendment banning booze? The, they looked at, 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 um, at drinking as completely evil, and um, there was a certain... Christian religious aspect to this. Uh, to them, drinking was against the Bible. And you had a lot of congressmen who were very conservative. Uh, they call uh, the uh, National Prohibition Act a joke. They call it as a nickname, the Volstead Act, after Andrew Volstead. But really, the force behind it was a teetotaling Texas congressman by the name of Morris Shepard, who was the real force behind prohibition. And uh, to the day, it was... Um, repealed he was still opposed to it so there was a strong religious element to it it was a, a moral element a cultural element were there was, was the pro and anti-prohibition uh, lines drawn along ethnic lines were certain ethnicities oh, yes. for it yes <laughs> my eastern european ancestors were all for drinking uh, a lot of the uh, white anglo-saxon class were not um so, there, yes, it did come because at the time, you know, immigrants were looked down upon and the uh, native-born Americans wanted them to become Americanized and they felt one way of becoming Americanized was to control your drinking. I mean, you go to some of these Slavic uh, christenings and wedding celebrations and it would go on for two or three days. You'd be constantly drinking. So when Prohibition was passed then, how did, how did it get implemented? I mean, uh, did they have a warning about in a certain amount of time you're going to have to shut down? Yes, or? they did. They gave them six months, but each state also passed its own version of prohibition to, to enforce force it on a statewide basis. And uh, so they gave the saloon owners, the liquor dealers, six months to turn over their stuff or face, face being arrested and raided. Um, so that's how it was very simple implementation. They stocked, like I said, they stocked it in the bonded warehouses and kept it until the future. Um, but um, it, it was just the impact of the corruption. I think that if I could just read this one section. It, when you were talking about the impact, this is a uh, Franklin Adams who was a columnist for, for the New York World. He says, prohibition is an awful flop. We like it. It can't stop what it's meant to stop. We like it. It's left a trail of graft and slime. It's filled our land with vice and crime. It don't prohibit worth a dime. Nevertheless, we're for it. And one of the reasons, uh, you know, right here in Pittsburgh, our homegrown Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary, he was tasked with, uh, with enforcing the law, and his heart was in it. He thought it was a worthless bill. And the Drys didn't have a lot of faith in him. And for good reason. Number one, he owned a distillery. He used to be partners with uh, Andrew Carnegie, no, Henry Clay Flurick and his brother, Richard Beatty Mellon. They had the West Overton Distillery. And it, when Prohibition went into effect, I think he had 60,000 gallons of uh, booze on stock, and he gave himself a license to sell it for industrial 
and medicinal purposes. And then when his son-in-law, David Bruce, uh, represented a company who wanted to uh, buy some alcohol, uh, somebody in the Treasury Department refused to grant um, a license, so Bruce went to his father-in-law who transferred that man and gave him the license. So they didn't have a lot of faith in, in him. And then he liked to stay at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in New York City on business. And when he was there once, it was raided by revenue, his revenue agents. By his own? By his own men. And he had a building down here in downtown Pittsburgh that had a still in the basement that was selling large quantities, and it got raided. Now, he wasn't involved in the still, but he owned the building, which was another embarrassment for him. So you quote him when he testified uh, before Congress, was it? Uh, a Senate committee about uh, his ownership of old Overholt. He said, I have nothing to hide, nothing up my sleeve. He said he had no idea how many gallons of liquor were held at the time of the 18th Amendment was uh, enforced, and you say he was lying. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, he had 60,000 gallons on stock. He had a considerable investment. He he bought his partnership, I think, and, I, and again, I'm not sure the accuracy of these numbers, uh, 125,000. He later afterwards sold it for over two million. So you know it wasn't about. You know, now we know why Andrew Carnegie or Andrew Mellon was very wealthy. So yeah, he knew exactly what he had in there. He was an astute businessman. He knew exactly what was going on in all his businesses. Meanwhile, the governor of Pennsylvania, Gifford Pinchot, was a dry. Oh, an ardent dry. Yeah, he. The one of the stories I heard is that he got loaded while studying forestry in Germany and got real sick. The other story was that he simply saw the way Germans drank heavily and was appalled by it and wanted to, uh, and, and favored prohibition and was adamantly opposed to uh, repeal. Did he ever try to use state police? To, oh, yes, to he used it a lot. There was times where he, he c couldn't get the Pittsburgh police doing things, so he sent in the state police. When I mentioned the Manaka Club, uh, that's how they raided that place. They used state troopers posing as college students who were in town for a football weekend and they went in and then they signaled their cohorts outside and they slammed, they took sledgehammers to the steel doors and uh, raided the place. That's how, that's the only way that place got uh, broken. So if you were in Pittsburgh and you owned a commercial distillery or a commercial brewery and uh, prohibition was coming, did, did you, were you expected to shut your doors and go out of business? Not necessarily. Some did, but others found uh, alternatives. Uh, example, uh, Bevo was a <laughs> was a uh, beer-like liquid that some of the breweries uh, produced. It looked like beer, it tasted like beer, but it didn't have any alcohol content. So what they did was these bootleggers would buy large quantities of that, then they would take a syringe with a needle and shoot alcohol through the cork into the bottle to give it some juice. Other uh, distilleries were remained open because they made cereal products for commercial use. And there was one in the north side that every day some of the excess mash would be let out and mothers would send their kids down with tins and fill it up with this mash. And they would take it home and cool it and then they would pour maple syrup over it and the kids would eat it for breakfast. So that was that was a commercial and agricultural use. Some uh, distilleries made ice cream. Did they, were they allowed to distill for export? No. The, the, they were limited to distilling for uh, industrial and medicinal uses. Uh, although the American Medical Association said it found no medical benefit from drinking. How hard was it to find a doctor to prescribe uh, Alcohol well, not hard. Uh, there's a picture in the book of a, uh, it says free medical advice. It was a quack doctor who would set up these uh, offices where they could dispense liquor. There was also another uh, thing that these bootleggers did. You could buy it at drugstores. So they would rent a storefront, spend the money to stock it with what looked like pharmaceutical products and, and, and things that you would buy in a drugstore, but it was really a front for selling liquor. So you get these these prescriptions from doctors and bring it in and you would get your liquor that way. Was Pittsburgh any different than any other city at the time? No, um, this is one thing that surprised me, Brian, was um, in my research I found that Pittsburgh, the, the activity level here was as great as New York, Chicago, Detroit, that Pittsburgh was just as violent, 
just as corrupt as those other cities. And that was one of the things that I found when I started my research, because I wasn't sure. The publisher had asked me if I'd be interested in doing this book, and I said, you know, I don't know anything about prohibition. Let me do a little research. I was shocked by the level of violence. In a four- or five-year period, there were 200 unsolved murders and 100 unsolved bombings. People were getting killed left and right. If you became what was known as the yeast king, persons, bootleggers who cornered the market on yeast, you had a very short lifespan. If you, if you became the yeast king, you'd be, be newspaper's polite way of saying, put on the spot, assassinated. And these guys were, one after another, were just biting the dust. You name a couple of them, Martin Burke? Martin Burke, yes, he was an Irish guy, Irish mobster who was running booze between here and Cleveland, and somebody walked up to his door one day and rang the bell, and when he answered it, they shot him dead. Was it, uh, was it over ethnic, uh, ethnic groups uh, no. having different mobs? No, not really. It, not at the time. Uh, initially, it was just over market share. Who could control the price of booze? Who could control the cost of yeast, the price of yeast? And that was, uh, and I didn't realize at the time, the sugar and yeast were the two key ingredients for making liquor, and who controlled that was more profitable than selling liquor. And the John Volpe, the yeah. Volpe brothers? Volpe brothers, that was uh, probably one of the most violent crimes that occurred during Prohibition. There were eight Volpe brothers from the Turtle Creek Valley area, Wilmerding, East Pittsburgh, and they were very powerful, very violent. And they tried to move into Pittsburgh. And they um, had a headquarters in a coffee shop, Rome Coffee Shop in the Hill District, which where the uh, PPG paint arena is now. And one day, John Volpe and two brothers were having a meeting, and uh, three men, one of which was his former bodyguard, came in and killed them all. That, that triggered the death of some of his other lieutenants, and pretty much their power waned right after that. They were no longer the political and crime force that they were. Were they related to the crime families in other parts of the country? Uh, no. but. They had business operations in the South. Uh, they did some, they shipped liquor to, to, to the Carolinas. Um, there was a Santa Volpe from Scranton, but a lot of people think that he was related to these Volpes, and my research revealed that he was not, although he was one of the men involved in retribution against the man who ordered the Volpe killings, a man by the name of John Bizzano. Um, John Bizzano was a yeast king, a silent partner with the Volpes. And the Volpes, after their, their murder, they weren't, nobody was sure but who, who ordered the killings, but they figured it out, it was John Bizzano. He wanted to eliminate them. So Bizzano got summoned to a meeting by the commission in New York City under the pretext that he was coming up there for a testimonial dinner since he was the new mob boss in Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, when he got there, he met Santa Volpe and, and Albert Anastasia that became the head of Murder Incorporated. They um, choked him, stabbed him, shot him, strangled him, and dumped his body in Brooklyn and as a message for viol you know, committing murders without the commission's approval. Where were the Pittsburgh police in all this? I mean, were they controlled by one of the mobs or? Oh, yeah, they were on the take. I mean. They, they investigated these murders only because they had to, because uh, Mayor Klein at the time was appalled. This was done on a Saturday afternoon, in high noon, with a street full of people. And there hadn't been anything that brazen before. You know, most of these murders took place were quick hits on the street or somebody taken out in the woods and killed. This was done in full, full view of a lot of people. Did you spend a lot of time plowing through newspaper archives? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do that almost every day. I love going through these old newspapers and finding these stories. Um, there's a ton of stuff. And you'd be surprised. There's a lot of scholarly stuff that was done. On the Volpe and the Bizzano cases, there's actually college professors that have done studies on those murders. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. What was the writing like? In the newspapers? Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. It, journalism's come a long way. I mean. When they were, especially when they were writing about crime, they, everybody thought they were Damon Runyon. It was so, so flippant the way they, they referred to these people. Uh, they referred to ethnic, they were not shy about 
using derogatory terms to refer to ethnic groups. And that's the thing that, that surprised me, you know, um, the way the editors at the time let some of that stuff get into the papers. Well, was the public, uh, did they look at these people as like folk heroes or were the public up in arms about this? Group? No, the, the uh, folk heroes would be a good term to, to describe them because Volpe's, for instance, helped a lot of people out that were struggling during the Depression. You know, gave them money, found jobs for them, provided food if their families were hungry. So in that way, uh, when the Volpe's died uh, and were buried, there was a lot of people that mourned, that came out to mourn them, and because they were good guys. So they were kind of, uh, not all of them, but some of them were considered heroes in their neighborhoods. How much of a presence was the Ku Klux Klan? Well, the Klan was pretty active here in Western Pennsylvania at the time um, because their, their focus was against immigrants and Catholics and Jews. So they were there, but um, I don't recall, I mean, I didn't do a whole lot of research into them. There was some incidents involving them, but I didn't really get into it too deeply. You say they, uh, the Ku Klux Klan responded to this invasion of African Americans from the South by aligning itself for a time with the Anti-Saloon League and intimidating African American immigrants who were overwhelmingly, uh, and immigrants who were overwhelmingly Catholic and heavy drinkers. So that's an odd pairing, you think, of the Ku Klux Klan and the Anti-Saloon League. Yeah, I, I found that a little odd, and I wonder if that's really accurate, but that's the way the newspapers portrayed it at the time. Uh, I, I could understand why the uh, Ku Klux Klan would be against um, uh, Catholics, for instance, and against immigrants, uh, and the blacks, of course. But when the, what they refer to as the Great Migration, the blacks moving from the south into Pittsburgh in, in large numbers, you know, they came here and there was a lot of clubs and a lot of speakeasies. A lot of them moved into the Hill District, which is, which is a very, at the time, was a very uh, popular area, an important area for politics and clubs and speakeasies and drinking. And the political bosses that controlled the Hill were protecting bootleggers. So I could see where maybe some of that fell in. What was the city like at the time? Well, Pittsburgh at the time had a population of nearly 700,000. It was a busy city. Um, it was a productive city um, until the Depression hit. There was, I have read where you couldn't go into any home or building in the entire United States without finding something that had been made in Pittsburgh in that, in that place. So it was, it was busy. It was, um, it was corrupt. Um, elections were tainted. Every election was tainted. Uh, Crime was rampant. People had no faith in politicians. Um, and when, when, when Walter Liggett came, he, he talked about the relationship between organized crime and public officials and the police. And uh, that's why he termed the, 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 the city the metropolis of corruption. Um, it was a rough place. It was a rough place to function. Well, this was all during the Depression, right? Mm -hmm. well, what kind of shape were the steel mills in? Well, the steel mills, after the Depression hit, were still going for a while, still had orders, but then just it just hit bottom. Uh, men were, were either getting laid off or had their work weeks shortened. So um, a lot of men who initially worked in, in, in the coal mines as well turned to bootlegging to make, a, make an extra buck. Everybody was doing it. Writing this book, how often did you come across something you had never known before? Oh my, almost every day. I uh, didn't know a whole lot about the history of Pittsburgh, and since then I've written a, a number of pieces about the history of Pittsburgh. And I think people don't appreciate the history of Pittsburgh and the southwestern Pennsylvania region. It's, it's rich in history, and I speak to a lot of historical societies, and I tell these people these things, and they're surprised by it, or they tell me something that I hadn't learned that I'm surprised by, and that triggers my interest, and I begin to do research and start looking at, at other things, and I've uncovered a, a great many stories that I want to tell. Like what? Well, jazz. I'm a jazz fan. And I wrote a magazine piece, which is being considered right now, about how jazz got to Pittsburgh. It got here on a steamboat. 
from St. New Orleans to St. Louis, brought here by a man, a musician by the name of Fate Marble, who played for on steamboats and brought all these black musicians who were sharecroppers by day and musicians by night, and he brought them up the Mississippi and the Ohio River to Pittsburgh. And his influence triggered a, a, a wave of interest in jazz, in, particularly in the Hill District, and which became a mecca for jazz artists. I mean, if you look at the list of jazz musicians, nationally famous, internationally famous, that came from this city, you would be shocked. I mean, it's big names, major, major artists. And uh, that's how it came here. Uh, another thing that I uh, was looking at was corruption in Pittsburgh over here at uh, the stadiums. It used to be known as Allegheny City and the lower rewards were known as, uh, as Little Canada because of uh, if you kept your nose clean in Little Canada, you would never be extradited anywhere. And it was a home to a motley collection of pickpockets and thieves and safe crackers and burglars and things like that. So uh, you're constantly amazed by, by the things. And this building that we're sitting in now is the heart of the Pittsburgh Renaissance. It used to be the Wabash Tunnel was here and it burned down in 1946 and they called that civic improvement because getting rid of this and this is where Gateway Center was. The whole renaissance was launched right on this spot. What was the Wabash Tunnel? It was just a train terminal that uh, Wabash Railboat had and uh, major point for uh, freight and uh, it was an eight million dollar fire and nobody was unhappy to see it burned out because they wanted this property for uh, the Renaissance and Gateway Center here. It was the, the whole jewel, the linchpin of this whole project, which turned Pittsburgh around. Well, who controlled the city government during Prohibition? Well, uh, mostly it was the mayors and the ward chairman. Uh, Charles Klein was probably the strongest mayor to uh, control things. Then there were uh, other, um, like there was uh, local ward leaders, like there was a guy in the Hill District named John Verona, who was uh, very politically powerful. And that's where they got into a lot of uh, conflict. Verona had constables that were essentially cops, carried weapons, had arrest powers, the same as Pittsburgh policemen had, and they protected certain speakeasies and bootleggers. Well, if Pittsburgh cops came in and raided a place that Verona's people were protected, Verona would turn around and go after places that Pittsburgh politicians, mayor, council, police inspectors had protected. And Verona even went as far as arresting a police lieutenant who locked himself in jail to keep from being arrested. But he arrested detectives and had them held in jail without bond to send them a message and teach them a lesson. So there was even corruption among the corruptors, so to speak. You say political control of the Hill District was vital to survival of the vice lords. And in 1930, there was a slate of candidates in an election that contained the names of convicted bootleggers, numbers operators, slot machine owners, and body house madams. Mm -hmm. So they would run for office and be elected? Yeah. Nothing to be proud of in those days. I mean, it's cleaned up a lot since then, but yeah, it was John Verona, as I just mentioned, was one of the most powerful figures in, in Hill District politics. Another was Gus Greenlee. Now, Gus Greenlee started out as a bootlegger, and he later is credited with Woogie Harris of introducing the numbers racket to Pittsburgh in 1926. I don't know if that's true. That's the legend. It may not be true. There may be other ways. And he was also owner of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, the uh, famous team in the National Negro League, and turned on some of the most famous and talented athletes in the history of baseball right here in the Hill District. So he controlled one ward. John Verona controlled another. And, and Greenlee started out as a bootlegger selling moonshine from the back of his taxi. They called him Gasoline Gus. And he um, started out with a guy named Joe Tito. Joe Tito was a racketeer here. Most people don't remember the name in terms of rackets, but later on he became owner of Latrobe Brewing that made Rolling Rock beer. 
So that was his original partner. They were very good friends. Tito also financed uh, the construction of Greenleaf Field, when, where the Pittsburgh Crawfords played because the Pirates wouldn't let them play, black players play in Forbes Field. So, and then he formed the Crawford Grill, which was a famous uh, jazz nightclub, very famous. So they were both politically powerful. Goss had been arrested once or twice for election fraud, and uh, I think Verona had been too, and they were all acquitted. Was Prohibition a, a white-black thing? Yeah, there was a, well, I mean, they weren't against each other. They usually worked hand-in-hand, hand, depending on what section of the city you were involved in. But it was mainly controlled by the whites. I want to read you something you say. Um, in a four-month period, agents seized 130,000 pints of liquor and more than 5,800 gallons of whiskey. How often were there these raids that you would see films of, the, the old films of with agents smashing oh, open barrels? Oh, they were quite frequent. But the problem was those numbers were paled in comparison to the amount of liquor that was being produced here. That was a drop, really a drop in the bucket. It sounds, when you read it, it sounds like an enormous amount of liquor that's taken off the streets, but really it wasn't. Um, I want to ask you about somebody else. Here's an interesting character. You probably came across a lot of interesting characters mm -hmm. during this. William L. King. Oh. He was an attorney for the Anti-Saloon League, and he turned out to be a scoundrel. Yes, he did. A bootleg. He, he came from the Anti-Saloon League to head a citizens group here, one of many citizens groups that were formed to try to clean up Pittsburgh and bring in good government. Unfortunately, the bootleggers got him and bought him off, and then he skipped town, then he came back, he was manufacturing evidence against innocent people to get them arrested and prosecuted, and so finally they, they had enough of him and he got run out of town. But yes, he was he was a crusader who turned corrupt. That's how that's how prevalent this money was. Was there a scene you would love to have witnessed, or people you would love to have met that you came across in doing this book? I'd love to have met Gus Greenlee. I, I I think he was. I wrote a a piece about him, a magazine article about him. I, I found him fascinating. Him and his partner Woogie Harris, uh, the way they the way they brought the numbers racket into Pittsburgh. I would also like to have met Peter Walsh, the police superintendent under uh, Charles Klein. He said he didn't drink, so he didn't know a dang thing <laughs> about speaking. He had testified before Congress. And he just said, I don't know anything about these nightclubs or speakies or moonshine. You know, and he was raking in the money uh, left and right. So um, yeah, I would like to have met him to ask him <laughs> some questions. How long did Prohibition last? 13 years. If you don't count the war years, it went into effect 1920, and it was repealed when FDR became president in 1933. Uh, its repeal was met mostly by shots of joy and long lines of cars at all the breweries around here. There were, at midnight, there was cars lined up for miles waiting to get in to buy legal liquor. And all the bars had countdowns to the um, the, the moment there was one incident in one Pittsburgh saloon where this guy named Otto Sorgel wanted to be the last man to drink moonshine, illegal moonshine. And it, the bar owner even put a ticker tape machine in so they would be notified when that moment came. Sorgel got ready, said he had been working and exercising and getting ready, and when the, somebody says, okay, Otto, it's time, he took a shot and drank it, immediately spit it out and said, you guys tricked me. This is bonded. This is the good stuff. This is bonded whiskey. I wanted to be the last man to drink moonshine. And unfortunately, his, he didn't get a chance for his record. And then other, you know, then it, it continued. I mean, moonshining continued. So the, did the distilleries get some sort of, okay, you can start distilling now because you can sell it in mm -hmm. some period of time? They, did new businesses start up or the old ones reopen their doors? Uh, some reopened, some never reopened, but um, there was such a mad rush for alcohol that they didn't have enough stocks of legitimate alcohol to sell, so they were selling moonshine in some bars as good, as the bonded liquor. And they were charging exorbitant prices until, they, until the supply caught up with the demand. And uh, so there was a lot of cheating going on because they had millions of gallons in these bonded warehouses that they, that they didn't use at the time, so. And the breweries couldn't brew beer fast enough. 
When the federal agents seized all the bonded liquor and put it in warehouses, what did they think they were going to do with it? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. It, it, I never came across an answer to that. I know that G Gifford Pinchot decided that, you know, since Pennsylvania w was essentially destitute and w needed money for uh, relief programs, he decided he was going to open up the warehouses and sell it. And critics called it uh, sweepstakes whiskey or Pinchot whiskey, and uh, it wasn't real good. Uh, it you know some of it had not been fully aged, and they just threw some food coloring in it to give it some color, and uh, started selling it to raise money. But they raised over half a million dollars for relief programs during the depression by that by that money. You say in the book that the way uh, alcohol is sold in Pennsylvania today traces its uh, roots back to Gifford Pinchot. Oh, yes. Pinchot did not want to see the repeal of prohibition, but he, want, so, but he wanted to find a way to make it hard for Pennsylvanians to buy liquor, and he gave us the state store system, which he said was the best system ever devised by man, and we all know that was a lie. <laughs> so you also say that re repeal did not kill the speakeasy. No, people still had speakeasies. Uh, again, you could make your liquor, sell it cheaper, don't pay a state tax on it, and um, you know, you're pretty much free to operate as you wish. Now, uh, of course, they, the, the police would raid because at that, that, the time they had laws against that. They wanted the excise tax. You know, you, uh, you had to, when they would go into a speakeasy, the first thing they would look at was the, the caps on the bottles to see if the, tab, the state tax stamp was broken. And of course, they forged some of those and put them on too. So, but yeah, and today you, you still occasionally see a story where uh, LCB agents raid a speakeasy. And today, uh, Pittsburgh is still a pretty hard-drinking town. Oh yes, yeah. I mean, uh, we have a. Uh, if you just want to evidence of that, just go to a tailgate party after before a Steeler game or a Pirate game, yeah, <laughs> or a college football game, yeah. It's a. They, I can hack them back pretty quick. You say Pittsburgh has today more bars per capita than any other city in the nation. There are 12 bars for every 10,000 residents in the city. Why Pittsburgh? Because of its history. I mean, you know, going back to colonial times, people drank all the time. They didn't drink water because the water was, was foul. So they drank. You had this ethnic uh, ex this ex ethnic immigration come here. People had European drinking habits. Uh, it, it just stayed with us. And then now you have a whole new generation. There's been a interest in craft liquors. So you have in this region a lot of craft distilleries, uh, a, a really large number. So people like their booze. They like quality liquor. Before we started this program, you talked about a couple other books you've been working on. Yes, I have two books coming out this year. I have a book coming out in June called The Mayor of Shantytown. Uh, about, it's a biography of uh, Catholic priest Father James Renshaw Cox, who was a pastor in the Strip District, and uh, in the fall, a book called Wicked Pittsburgh. What is significant about uh, Father Cox? Well, Father Cox was a, um, a humanitarian who fed millions, thousands of people during the Depression, the worst years. He distributed 2.2 million meals and uh, was really angry with President Hoover for not doing enough to alleviate the suffering. So he decided he was going to take a couple thousand men and march to Washington to present his demands. And he ended up with an estimate of maybe 25,000. They marched to, through the dead of winter over the mountains of central Pennsylvania down to Harrisburg and then down to Washington, and uh, he, his march changed the way people look at their government and the way people protest. There had been small, minor protests prior to him. I'm Jacob Coxey. A lot of people get Jacob Coxey and Father Cox. Um, it was also known as Coxey's Army at the time, but it was only four or 500 men who marched from Ohio to Washington, D.C. And he had the, what he, Coxey had what he called the Good Roads Program, wanted to build new roads to put unemployed to work. But a lot of Cox's demands that he presented to Hoover, and he met personally with President Hoover, 
became the basis of FDR's New Deal, unemployment insurance, Social Security, things like that. And uh, unfortunately, though, when Cox came back, he got into uh, a little trouble. He, he was an inveterate gambler, and he used gambling to raise money for his relief efforts, and he rigged a lottery. And uh, the promoters of the lottery turned out their relatives or their friends were all the winners, and Cox was indicted. Uh, for mail fraud and went on trial and barely missed the conviction and ended up in a hung jury. He also had run, in between, had run for president of the United States in a ill-fated campaign that was just uh, poorly organized. He overestimated his popularity and uh, thought that people would flock to his jobless party that he had created, and they didn't. And your other book, Wicked Pittsburgh, I mean, it sounds like you covered some of it in this Yeah, book. a little bit. It's, uh, it's mostly a history of uh, corruption in the city. It goes back to the days of uh, late uh, 19th century and uh, goes up to the 70s. talks about some of the corrupt mayors and politicians that were in office, um, interesting people who were corrupt, who were like, influence, influential people who were corrupt. So uh, that's kept me busy in retirement. Are there any sites in Pittsburgh that you visited to, so you could say, oh, on this site was this speakeasy or on this site was this distillery? Yeah, Anything people I did, should but go see? I did try to find some of those places, but the problem is there, this, so much time has lapsed. It's totally different now from a geographic standpoint. Um, I, I tried to find some places in the north side where there was some uh, breweries, but they're long gone. The the one uh, that I did go by is over in Lawrenceville, the uh, former Iron City Brewery. Uh, building is still there. They now make Iron City in a different different town in western Pennsylvania. I think it's in Latrobe now. They make it out of there, but that building is still there. It was very uh, very famous. Iron City was in operation before Prohibition. Mm -hmm. It had been in business for a long time under different names. What did they do during Prohibition? They made ice cream and bevo and things like that. And also bootleg liquor. The owner got indicted, Samuel Grenet, who was a uh, state lawmaker. He was uh, making it secretly there, clandestinely, and juicing it with alcohol. And he got charged, quitted. <laughs> Surprise. Well, we've been speaking with Richard Gazarek. He's the author of this book, Prohibition Pittsburgh. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.